Oh, Lord in heaven, this morning, Father, as you well know, we attempt to very superficially plumb the depths of one of the more mysterious, difficult aspects of your nature and character. And I so pray, oh God, this morning for just a special imbuement of your Holy Spirit to give understanding, to give clarity in my words, which will probably be less than clear at every point, to be sure. And so we pray, O oh Lord, that you accomplish your purposes among us and in us this morning to the glory of your name and praise. Take away the sheaths on hard hearts and the blinders, Lord, on eyes that have been closed and open ears to hear your truth and your truth alone. In your name we pray. Amen. This is the third part in a seven-part series called Exploring God. And this morning, we're talking about the problem of evil. That's the way it's called anyway, typically in, uh, in theological circles. And this aspect of why does God allow pain and suffering, or what again is called the problem of evil, is probably certainly the most often used uh, argument or expression from the hearts of people from all walks of life and all faiths. And many, unfortunately, use it to justify their suppressing of the clearly revealed truths about God, which God himself has revealed to us. We've talked about those in the first two segments of this series. And if you've missed either of those, it is unlike anything certainly that I've ever done. And they've been among the most difficult things that I have done. And I would encourage you to go online and obtain those. The first week we did was, do I have purpose? Do I matter? And the second one that we covered two weeks ago was, is there a God? And so again, I just encourage you to grab those if you uh, weren't here for those. And hopefully they will be helpful no matter where you are in your walk of faith. You've heard the problem of evil, maybe not expressed in those particular words, but actually expressed many different ways with varying degrees of intensity. But it basically manifests itself in one way or another in this manner. I can't believe in a God that would allow and you fill in the blank with just about anything and everything. The truth is that regardless of one's faith position, ranging, again, from tremendous faith to even no faith, everyone experiences disappointment with God. <laughs> Duh. If you've read anything at all in the history of what I would call the great saints um, and that's probably a poor choice of words considering the makeup of our congregation, which has a large portion of, of, of us are former Catholics, and we have this wrong understanding of what a biblical saint is. A saint, scripturally, is simply anyone who believes in Jesus. And all of the great saints of the past, if you read them, or at least many of them, to be sure, experience somewhere along their ministry life what has sometimes been called the dark night of the soul. And I'm talking about the Spurgeons and the Whitfields and, again, the biggest names in Christendom's history where they have this occurrence in their life where they're just, they're just inundated with despair and doubt and wondering because of many of the things that we're going to talk about this morning. So you're in good company. And I hate platitudes. And so I'm going to be candid as we go through this about my own personal disappointments with God. The thesis for what I'm calling the problem of evil is basically summarized like this. If there is a God, 
And he is all-powerful, all-good, all-loving, and all-knowing. Why is there so much unfairness, pain, suffering, and sorrow in the world? So again, true confessions this morning. While the Bible has answers for this, I still have other big questions concerning the mysteries of the divine. Even I struggle with the seemingly inexplicable unwillingness as it occurs or seems to me, or the carelessness of a creator who could intervene here, there, and everywhere, and yet seems to choose not to, which often is to the peril of many. One of the most difficult times I have had with God is when someone's faith is hanging in the balance. And what I mean by that, somebody who's who's not a Christ follower, and whatever their pilgrimage has been, they're definitely not there, but then what often happens is something substantially bad happens in their life, and in their desperation, now suddenly there seems to be this new openness a new opportunity for God to shatter all their doubts. And I'm thinking, if he just comes through now in a big way. And so you pray. And you pray some more. And you're praying all these things that you know about God's nature. He desires that no one perish. And oh God, you know, if you would just... I mean, they seem to be so wide open and laid bare before you. And they're vulnerable. And if you just come through now and you just do something profound, that'll be it. It'll push them over. And they'll be one of yours forever. And surely that's what you want. And so you pray. And what happens? Sometimes, oftentimes, nothing Or, worse, the situation gets worse than it was. And so the mind-boggling letdown, I'm talking about me personally, strains my sensibilities, and I am compelled by my own weakness of faith to express my displeasure with the Holy Omnipotent One. which again, I've said it many times, is why I am so thankful for the book of Job being in the Bible. Because if I were God, knowing me, I would just so many times, many years ago, just gone, cripe, out to the reaches of the universe, gone. But we know that God is big enough to take our disappointments, our arguments, our criticisms, and our complaints. Again, thank you, Job, for showing us that. And I get this way not just because I don't have or I don't understand the answers, because I do. It is because the answers that I am confident are true just they're not satisfying. <laughs> and why aren't they satisfying? Because every single one of us tends to make God in our image and likeness. And that is when I have to give myself a spiritual dope slap reminding myself of my place in the universe. Well, in God's wisdom, enter the Apostle Paul. The Apostle writing, not just, according to Peter, not just people who wrote the Scriptures did so according to what they thought or felt or opined in the day, but rather it says that holy men spoke as they were moved by the Spirit of God. So it's as if God Himself speaks through the writers of Scripture. Again, the Apostle Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 9. He sets a context where he's talking about his own personal frustration and his own very intimate grief over the multitudes of his own kin, namely the chosen ones, the Jews who are perishing 
because they have rejected their Messiah, the Savior Jesus. Paul's foundational complaint in Romans 9 boils down to he just doesn't appreciate God being God. Stripping away all the fluff, that is what Paul's hang-up is. And that is what our hang-up is. We all make God like us. And so he surely thinks and he reasons and he acts like a better version of ourselves. And so chapter 9 includes two situations in history where God acts out of his sovereignty. That is, he acts like the God that he is. And to the onlooker who is bound by time and space, the way God operates in the world can seem cavalier, it can seem capricious, and or flat out cruel. And so Paul uses two Old Testament examples to illustrate and explain something very important about God. And that is, God is God, and we are not. The first situation that Paul uses is he's talking about Jacob and Esau, two brothers born as twins, Jacob the second-born, Esau, the first-born. And he uses them because their situation is a point of contention that indeed kicks against what we think we understand about God. Namely, that God is good and kind and fair, and just and generous and fair, and benevolent and fair, And we keep going on. And this idea that God is consummately fair continues to emerge. So if God is anything, we know that God is fair. But then again, we come to Jacob and Esau. Esau was the firstborn, as I said. He was the older brother. And by that, there were mandated rights and privileges of the firstborn that were as codified in the culture and in the principles and precepts of God's heart and mind that were inviolate, meaning they can't be changed. And yet, Esau, the firstborn, became subservient to Jacob, the younger brother. And he did so, though, by God's orchestration of events. And protest is the order of the day because that is not the proper operation of the family and the ordered rights of the firstborn. So legitimately inquiring minds want to know why. We want some answers. God's explanation comes in Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 13. God says, the explanation is simple. Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated. Now we really have issues with God, because that does not fit the God we've made in our image and likeness. Wait, I hate God. No, God, God is love. God can't. What do you mean he hates? And so very cavalierly, he just decided, yeah, you know what, Esau, you annoy me. Jacob, boom, you're getting everything that was supposed to be his. And so it rattles our sensibilities in those answers that we keep in those tightly knit packages. The first problem here, though, or the first issue, though, is linguistic. We all know what an idiot, I assume we know what idioms are. You know, somebody walks in and they go, boy, it's raining like cats and dogs out there. You don't sit there and look outside waiting for a St. Bernard, you know, or a beagle or a Siamese to start flopping on the ground, okay? That's an idiom. And here, the the, the use of the word, what's tra- remember, this is a translation from the original. And you've heard the, the expression, you know, yeah, things get lost in translation. And indeed they do. It is the inescapable nature of translation. 
And the word here that we read as God hated Esau is a Semitic, meaning a Jewish idiom. And it simply heightens the difference between the men Jacob and Esau. The text then moves on from one uncomfortable situation right into another situation that in some ways to us is probably even more troublesome. And it pertains to the Pharaoh of Egypt, who is in the company of Moses at the situation that's being extracted. And Pharaoh was commanded by God to let Moses and his people go out of Egypt. They were in bondage to Pharaoh. And God says, let my people go and worship me and commands Moses, look, you will go to Pharaoh. You will tell him to release you because I want you to go and freely worship me out there. We find that, by the way, in the book of Exodus. So Moses goes to Pharaoh and Pharaoh says, "Ah, yeah, that's not going to happen. So we go through the drama then of all the plagues. This is where the ten plagues come in to the scriptures that God brought upon Pharaoh, designed to pressure him into obeying God and letting his people go and worship him. And if you know the story enough, each time Pharaoh gets closer and closer to doing what God wanted all along, he takes a step forward and then he takes a step or three backwards changing his mind. And each time that Pharaoh changes his mind, what does God do? God brings yet another plague upon Egypt, right up to the last one, where the last of the the plagues is that the firstborn of every animal in Egypt and every family in Egypt is taken, which is the final plague that crushes Pharaoh's recalcitrant spirit. It crushes his disobedient will. So now Pharaoh is compelled to completely obey God. Now that doesn't seem so troublesome until we read Paul's detailed explanation centuries later. What we read... In Romans 9, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart, causing him to never fully do what God wanted until the last plague. Meaning Pharaoh was trying to comply with God, but God intervened so that Pharaoh changed his mind after each of the plagues with increasing punishment for doing so. God himself explains it for us in Romans 9, beginning in verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, what scripture? It's referring to Exodus 9, 16. God explains his workings in the world. God is now speaking. God says, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. And then in Romans, it keeps going, and Paul now adds his inspired commentary on God's explanation. Verse 17 and 18. So then, God has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Meaning, God is sovereign. God created us. We belong expressly to Him to do His bidding in the world. The foundational concept which is reiterated in the New Testament comes from the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians, first book, chapter 6, verse 19, says, you have been brought, bought with a price. You have been bought with a price. The preceding verses says, your bodies are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. And you got to love God's foresight in anticipating our inclination to protest what we perceive to be unfairness. 
So repeating what I've already said in Romans, for this very purpose, Pharaoh, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then God has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, well, then why does he still find fault for who resists his will? And it's a great question. We're being told by God that I hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he wouldn't let those people go. And so we say, well, then how in the world can you blame him? And the answer is ever so unsatisfying. Are you ready? It's almost like there's a divine throat clear here. Uh, <clears throat> uh, who do you think you are to question God? And by the way, if that sounds familiar, it should. Because after my dear friend Job, my colleague, my example, my comforter, when I'm on my rant, God said the same thing to Job after he was all done and headed out of his system. Again, you hear this divine throat clear in Job chapter 38. And God says, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? I like the contemporary English version. It says, Why do you talk so much when you know so little? It's like, I get that. The passage in Romans continues. Remember, he says, who do you think you are to question God? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? This is the answer we are getting to. Hey, God, how can you hold Pharaoh, you know, blameful when you're telling us that you harden his heart? And the answer is, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will the thing molded not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? using an illustration of a potter with clay, putting us in our place. Look, you're just a lump of clay. And they were familiar with that. It was part of their culture and making utensils and things like that. And so they're saying, look, have you ever seen a lump of clay sit there and rise up off the wheel and start blasting the person who was working the clay and saying, hey, wait a minute, I don't want to be an urn. I want to be a plate that sits on the table every day. I mean, it's so ridiculous, but we have more in common with a lump of clay than we do with the God of heaven as far as our similarity in holiness to him. God's giving us perspective. Will the thing molded, the thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Does the not potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use. And of course the answer is, well, yeah, of course. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much, much patience vessels of wrath who've been prepared for destruction? This is applying to Pharaoh. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon his vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, and not from among Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. God is simply saying, I am God, and you don't have to like the fact that I do what I do, or the way I do it, or don't do it. Because you are a lump of clay and I am the potter. And I have full right over what I do with my clay. We don't like that. Because again, we have made God in our image and likeness. God's sovereignty, which can look mean and heartless from what I like to call the cheap seats, looks entirely different when you have the view of all knowledge and know the end before the beginning. You do realize, to state the obvious, 
that God doesn't have to wait around for our lives to go down our time of life to figure out who is saved and who isn't saved. Who's going to save, who's going to receive Jesus and who's going to reject him. That's all time. God's outside of time. God knows the beginning from the end before there is a beginning or an end. And so God uses Pharaoh to demonstrate to the broader masses of the wonder and the might and the power of God so that the masses would also see the mercy and the loving kindness to those who will receive him with the information he has revealed to them in creation, going back to part one and two. This is the God of the universe. He is not like us. Maybe another way of saying this is that we are not God, obviously, and we cannot possibly understand him whose ways are always good. Which is why himself, he tells us in Isaiah 55, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And at the end of it all, there are basically two. I've melted this all down to two real reasons we even think that there's a problem of evil or why there's wickedness in the world and all of that. First, it is because our puny understanding of the Lord of the universe is just so shallow. And that's not an indictment on anyone's habits of study or anything else. The most studied individual in the world still has a puny understanding of the one who is infinite. It is because our puny understanding of the Lord of the universe is so shallow, which results in number two, again, our making God in our image and likeness in an attempt to understand him. Meaning we evaluate the deep and the complicated and the incomprehensibly complex things of the world and God's place in it through our puny and deficient understanding of even the minuscule snippets of all that can be known about any situation. And we really would do well to let that sink in deeply. Now. All of what I have said to this point are the theological foundations of the fundamental issue of why God permits evil. And as a fellow human being with a puny mind, let me shift to a more, what I will call a real-time, hopefully scratch more where you itch approach to this. Let's think about some uh, things that we're familiar with. In, in real life, things like natural disasters, like a tsunami killing hundreds of thousands of people. It is natural for us to ask, why God? First, you need to hear this clearly. No one knows why God allows such things. No one. No one knows why God allows such things. All we can do in any situation, large or small, is we make observations of what transpired in whatever the situation is. But observations do not necessarily explain why God allows certain things. It only reports what happened as a result. 
In difficult times, we do the Lord and we do the victims of tragedy a great disservice by presuming that we know the mind of God based on our puny observations of things that took place during or because of a situation. But guess what? God knows all that. He knows what our deficiencies are there, our inadequacies. And so he helps us out a bit. Think about two mighty towers that fall by two passenger jets intentionally being plowed into them, another jet into the Pentagon, one purposefully, heroically crashed in a field, over 3,000 people being killed. And we say, why? And if you were there, not there, but I mean, if you were alive on that day and you remember, which if you were alive, it's hard not to remember. You remember all the hand-wringing and the wise and the pontifications of people of, well, this is why this happened and that happened and everything else, you know. We heard everything from Islamic wrath to the CIA bringing down the towers for who knows what reasons and everything in between and beyond. Why did God allow it to happen? Well, the top tenders, according to they, them, and those, were America's greed, America's bully status in the world, and the one that the Christians liked a lot were America's apostasy. And that's easy to argue. Apostasy is the abandonment from the faith and the foundations of the Christian faith that this nation were founded on. So again, let's let the word help us out. Jesus uses two tragedies of his own to teach an important lesson about tragedies, about pain, and about suffering in general. It comes from Luke chapter 13. Now, we read, there were some present who reported to Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. So what we're told with right at the beginning, and, and we're not given really any background much, but just, and there were these people and they were asking Jesus about the Galileans who were murdered by Pontius Pilate as they were in the process of, of bringing forth their Jewish sacrifices. And obviously they are looking for answers. They're asking why God. And here's what Jesus says to them. Do you suppose by the very question do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? Hmm. Between the lines of Jesus' words is a notion that the public sentiment was that the people who Pilate murdered must have been extraordinary sinners, unlike the run-of-the-mill sinners that we are. We tend to do this too, don't we? I do. I say to my shame, you hear of something and you go, yeah, well, you know, I mean, really? What were they doing there that time of night in that place? And, you know, I mean, uh, yeah. And implied in that as well, you know, they had it coming. Right? I hear this and honestly, like I said, I do the same things. And recently, remember there were some, there was huge, huge, huge wildfires again, just this, uh, what, this fall or, or whatever out, out in California. And I don't know how it came up, but it was in passing. And somebody said to me here, out there, said to me, well, now remember, this, this was the, the, I mean, they've always had fires and everything and devastation out there, but it was a particularly bad year for all that and the number of houses and people killed and all of that. And the comment was, well, you know, I mean, it is California. <laughs> and honestly, you know, I'd sit there and rebuke them. I'm like, oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> right? What Jesus does is he sharply corrects those of his day for their woefully simplistic assessment 
Was it because the Galileans were so evil? Jesus says, I tell you no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Wow, hey, hey. <laughs> hey, that's not what we expected. Jesus then even piles on. And he takes advantage of a teachable moment, jumping right to another well-known calamity. Do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. Jesus masterfully uses two current events of calamity of which everyone was familiar, interpreting them both identically. That is that bad things happen to bad people. (laughs) What What Jesus doesn't say here is as important as what he says. What he says is that we need to be mindful of the soteriological, theological realities of humanity. Say what? Soteriology is the nature study of salvation. Theology, the study of God. But Jesus refuses to automatically connect tragedy, pain, and suffering to any individual's personal sinfulness. Which is exactly the way the masses in Jesus' day assessed their world. Example, John chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. There's a man who was born blind. And the people ask, hey, Jesus, now listen. Hey, Jesus, who sinned? This man who is blind or his parents? That's it. Not, gee, maybe there's another explanation here. But bad things happen to bad people and really bad things happen to really bad people. And Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents. Huh? Well, then what was it? It was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And you remember what happened. Jesus healed the man of his blindness. You mean this man was born blind? And all that that means to this man through childhood and his teen years, and now he's a young adult or an old adult. We don't know how old he was. And he was born that way so that God could and would use him for greater purposes? Yeah. Because God can do that. Isn't it? Interesting that this is the exact same answer that we were given about God's dealing with Pharaoh. When the tsunami hit Indonesia in 2004, over 250,000 people were killed. And it did happen because it's easy to say or easy to note that Indonesia has the highest population by percent of Muslims of any country in the world. And hence, some Christians were concluding, well, that's why Indonesia. Jesus says, in effect, if you want to play the game of tragedy that way, you need to ask a different question. Instead of asking, how come those 18 were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell? Much better questions, theologically speaking, would be, would be, how come only 18 were killed and how come I wasn't one of them? Oh. Yee. The point being that all the people in Siloam should have died if we're playing the game of moral worthiness of one human over another. Let me say it again. 
All the people in Siloam should have died if we're going to play the game of moral worthiness of one human over another. The question isn't, why did 3,000 die in Manhattan that morning? Why didn't 300,000 die? We also want to note, Jesus doesn't give a reason. He does not give a reason for the tragedies in Galilee or Siloam. Hmm. Go figure. So we need to be very careful of confusing cause and effect presumptions with cause and result realities. What do I mean by this? It is very tempting to ascribe an earthquake that an earthquake that occurs along the San Andreas Fault, which is in Southern California, to the abundant wickedness of the Hollywood culture or ascribing a devastating tsunami to the preponderance of unchristian or even anti-Christian populations of the area. But you see, the fact of plate tectonics, which is what causes earthquakes, they are in play every day all around the world. When we were living in Seattle and I was an administrator of the hospital, we had to continually keep our, up, uh, our, plan, our emergency plan updated for earthquakes in particular because every single day in the Pacific Northwest, 50 earthquakes were occurring every day. Now, I'm talking about below the level of what we would even necessarily know most of the time. But seismographs, when I saw that, I went, oh, that puts a whole different perspective on the reality of we need to have our emergency procedures set and down. But they occur every day all around the world. And the Muslim, as well as the host of non-Christian regions around the globe, make it difficult to attribute the cause of such disasters to the cultural degradation of a particular locale or the religious makeup of any country or state. And if we play that game, we are left explaining then the myriad of other natural disasters and wars and cataclysms throughout history that do not affect areas with similar demographics. What I mean by that by way of illustration is in 2017, there was a mass shooting of 59 people in Las Vegas, Nevada. What's the nickname of Las Vegas, Nevada? Sin City. Oh, well, it's obvious why this disaster happened in Las Vegas. It's because of Sin City. But again, if we play that game, then you've got to ask questions like, okay, but why not New Orleans? I don't know if you know about New Orleans. Let me tell you, it has nothing on Las Vegas. Or Las Vegas has nothing on, however you want to put that. They are both the pit of hell. And if not New Orleans, why not New York City or Atlanta or Chicago or Seattle or Waterville? You see, playing the game of moral worthiness, connecting it to disaster that way, is really simplistic, to put it kindly. As we're wrapping up here, let me move away from the mass kinds of calamities to up-close and personal kinds, because the truth be told, that is where the rub really comes for people of all faiths and of no faiths. I'm going to give one illustration only. I had so much information to this, it was hard pinning things down of what to use, what not to use. But I'm going to use one from recent, relatively speaking, history from the 40s, because when I first read about it, it obviously stuck with me, and it was over 40 years ago. I'm speaking of Corey Ten Boom, dear Christian woman, who she and her family of 10 were incarcerated at Ravensbrück concentration camp under Hitler's regime. She saw her 10 family members either starve to death or murdered in any number of ways. And for some reason, we say, Corey Ten Boom, again, a dear Christ follower, survived. 
And Corrie ten Boom, not to be daunted by all that horror and tragedy, if you've ever read any of her books about that, she was in the midst of very secretly, at risk of her life, of conducting Bible studies in her barracks with the women there. And as she describes again just the horror of everyday life and what she was putting on the line, on the line for all of that, the worst of all things happens on top of all of that. And it is now they have a lice outbreak in her barracks and she is asking God, really? And then in hindsight, looking back, it dawned on her that because of the lice outbreak in the barracks, they no longer had to fear the spontaneous inspections because the guards didn't want to get lice and so they left them completely alone and the Bible studies went on in God's power and might. We are puny in what we see and what we know and what we understand. One more, and this one is very close to home. Right next door behind this wall is a room called the B. Lee Center. B. Lee was one of our dear saints who was here before I ever came. One of the key matriarchs, if you will, of faith. The one who really, again, when you were a small church of, you know, a handful of people, things happen usually by the leadership and initiative of one person. And it has a big effect because there aren't many to affect. B always made sure that fellowship, that people were getting together and, and providing things of all that, which is why we named the B. Lee Fellowship Center as it was originally planned to be and still is to a much lesser degree named after her in her honor. Well, B. Lee had lung cancer. And B. Lee was right feet away, if you will, from our church in Inland Hospital in her last hours. And B was there and her doctor happens to be, who was a good friend of mine and was a faither himself, was her attending physician. And he called us up. And by the way, B. Lee is Janet Johnson, our director of children's ministry's mother, just to make those connections in case you didn't realize that. And so anyway, Dan calls me and he says, I think it's time you better come over. And so I go over there and he had summoned the family and everything else. And we're standing there. And there were maybe, I don't know, 15 people or so in the room. And, of course, B was out of it, you know. And she's just there, and she's got machines all hecked up. So I could see what was going on with her her uh, vital signs and all of that. And we're standing there, and we're standing there. And, you know, hours went by. And now I want you to picture her husband, Bob. Bob, of course, is beside himself. He is sobbing. He is holding B's hand. He is next to her on the bed at points. And he is sobbing and out loud pleading with God. No, God, no, please. No, you know, don't take my B. You can't. And your heart is being ripped right out of you. And making a long, drawn-out thing short, I'm looking at the vital signs going, this ain't happening today. And I look at Dr. Dan, and he goes, and so there's that awkwardness, and he says, well, um, I guess she's going to be around for a little while longer. So sends everybody home. Next day, uh, you better come over here. This is it. It's time. So I go back over there. Family goes back over there. Same drill. Same thing. Now Bob is still, he's, he's, he's crying and his words are fewer than they were the day before, but it's like, oh B, I'm gonna be, what am I gonna do without you? And you can't do this. And again, your heart's being ripped out through your chest and, and, uh, and the same thing happens. She rebounds. <laughs> and Dan says, well, uh, I don't think this is happening today. And we all go home and now I'm having conversation with the creator of the universe because he's obviously missing things here and he needs my expert wisdom. And I'm going, Lord, are you kidding? Look, this is not increasing life. This is prolonging death. 
How can you put these people through this and her dear husband and all of it were sitting? God, what, what is wrong with you? And you know what God said to me? Nothing. <laughs> Which is probably a really good thing. Third day. Pastor Bill, you better come over. <laughs> and now, you know, being the man of God that I am, I'm like, yeah, right, here we go. <laughs> I go over there, same drill, except for one dynamic change. Her husband, instead of crying and pleading out, no, no, God, no, don't take my Beatrice. Now Bob is praying, Lord, take her home. Take her home. And I, and she died. And I went away from that going, what I just saw and witnessed was such a huge life lesson to me. Because what looked to me like a callous, cavalier, uncaring God in just putting his people through the mill like this, I believe fervently it was all directly for her husband and in a much lesser way for the rest of us. But for her husband to get from that place of I can't do this, I can't go on without her, to saying, Lord, please take her. Oh, the abundant mercies of God. And how I am so thankful, and I do tell him this, that you don't listen to me. He is good. He is loving, but he is God Almighty. And he doesn't need to explain himself to us. Why does God, why does evil exist in the world? For God's purposes. And we have to trust that He knows what He's doing. Let me have you stand. Father in heaven, I pray for every heart, every soul, every conscience here, O oh God just be stripped to the foundations and you take the words of truth and apply them intimately, personally to everyone in here, Lord. Whatever their spiritual status is, oh God, I believe your grand purposes are to use all of this to bring those who refuse you to come closer to you, Lord, and to submit to your love and goodness, even amidst many answers or many questions and struggles. Father, thank you for being the kind of God that you are. And while it sounds really stupid, Lord, thank you that you don't succumb to the pressure of these lumps of clay throughout the eons who have a better idea and a better way than you. Thank you for your mercy and for seeing us in the beloved. In Jesus' name, we give thanks to you and pray. Amen.